0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for the July 2009 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Granger from TLO. Welcome, Emma. Hello, Richard. Let's start with a research article that was in the news last week when we published it online, and that concerns bariatric surgery for obese people in relation to cancer. Up until now, what, what do we know, actually, about this relationship between obesity and cancer? What has previous research told us?
1: Well, there have been some observational studies that have suggested a link between the two, that there's an increased risk for those who are obese. And these studies usually measure BMI, which is a body mass index, there's difficulty with the studies that um, improving causality. So, for example, if you show a weight loss in somebody, um, to prove that that weight loss um, is responsible for the drop in the incidence in cancer, it's, it's difficult to make that link. And studies have also been limited by difficulties in separating any intentional weight loss from from unintentional weight loss. So, if people have you know certain diseases, they might be losing weight anyway and also any loss if it's through dietary intervention is often not sustained over time and follow-ups often very short to these patients.
0: So in other words th- there's a sort of assumption but but it's not hasn't been clearly def- clearly proven or defined.
1: Yes, that's it. There's a lot of retrospective studies and these obviously have numerous biases and in fact there's been three recent retrospective studies and they've all reported a reduced incidence of cancer in those that are undergoing weight loss surgery. But there isn't any prospective study, at least as far as I'm aware, that looks at the effects of such an intervention for weight loss and any subsequent cancer incidence.
0: I guess it takes a longitudinal study done in a country like Sweden. It always seems to be the Scandinavian countries where we publish in the Lancet journals these um, sort of epidemiological longitudinal type studies. Can you just uh, outline the methodology of the study that you're publishing that we're discussing now?
1: This is. Quite a unique study that addresses the evidence gap, really, that I was referring to before. And the study's known as the Swedish Abyss Subject Study, or SOS for short. And it looks prospectively, um, so it's, it's, as far as we're aware, the first time this has been done prospectively at an intervention. And in this case, it's bariatric weight loss surgery and the effects of this intervention on cancer incidence. And the authors have previously reported in this same group of subjects in the New England Journal of Medicine, a few reports actually on the effects of this surgery, on the risk of diabetes and cardiovascular risk factors, and also most recently on mortality. And it was this recent study on mortality that kind of prompted this study, because the primary endpoint of SOS was mortality. But the authors saw an effect particularly for those with cancer. So they decided to see whether the effect of the surgical intervention was also on cancer incidents and their study group includes over 4,000 subjects with about half of them undergoing three different forms of weight loss surgery. And they also looked at weight loss and incidents from baseline up to 15 years and they also evaluated energy intake using a validated questionnaire.
0: And do go on Emma and uh, outline the results. From a cursory look at the paper it seems that one thing the study does is identify a difference in terms of sex differences in the results.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, the results are quite impressive, but they're not that straightforward to interpret. It's expected there was a mean weight reduction of 19.9 kilograms over 10 years in the surgical group, and this was compared to 1.3 kilograms in the controls. And the number of first-time cancers was also different between the groups, with 117 in the surgical intervention group and 169 in the controls. And this difference for the whole group was um, statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.67. But as you mentioned, what was particularly intriguing was when the results were then split down by gender. For women, there was again a statistically significant difference in favour of the surgical group with a hazard ratio of 0.58. But in men, this difference wasn't seen. It wasn't statistically significant and hazard ratio was close to 1.
0: And what do we know about underlying mechanisms, Emma, and the types of cancer that could be relevant here in terms of bariatric surgery?
1: Well, there was some discussion within the editorial team as to why there'd be a difference between the men and the women um, in the results, and whether this was to do with underlying mechanisms. And interestingly, this difference um, was also seen in two of the retrospective studies that I mentioned earlier, and is nicely summarised in a figure um, that appears in the link comment to the article, and that's by Dr Andrew Renahan from the University of Manchester. And he speculates that these gender differences could simply be due to the small numbers of cancers that were seen in the men. And the fact that the common cancers seen in women, um, breast and endometrial cancers, are hormonally related and will manifest within a decade, whereas some of the cancers that are numerically more common in men, such as prostate cancer or um, colorectal cancer, they might not become apparent until there's a much longer follow-up. And some of the other potential mechanisms that you were referring to, the Swedish authors themselves speculate that exposure to endocrine disruptors, such as food contaminants and stress, might disrupt the normal regulation of estrogens, androgens, and insulin and also abdominal obesity has been linked to alterations in the levels of several potential mediators of increased cancer incidence in obese subjects, such as insulin and insulin-like growth factor 1, and also the sex steroids. And some studies have also suggested that a gastric bypass has an effect on insulin by altering um, gastrointestinal hormone signaling. But it was particularly interesting that the study didn't show a link between the weight loss or energy intake and cancer incidence, but there was a link with baseline sagittal trunk diameter. So there's more research certainly needed to try and elucidate you know, what's behind these results and uh, responsible for the reduced incidence in the surgical group.
0: So what are the main conclusions, Emma, and next steps, do you think?
1: It's a difficult one. Uh, really, you need a large randomised trial, but that's very unlikely to happen. Um, people would be quite reluctant to be randomised between um, a surgical intervention and a dietary intervention, for example. And, of course, the surgery is not risk-free. There's operative mortality and potential side effects that need to be balanced against any potential benefits. But as I mentioned before, there definitely needs to be more research to tease out what the links are between weight loss, surgical interventions and cancer incidents.
0: Next, Emma, let's look at the research article concerning neuroblastoma. What are the main issues in oncology that neuroblastoma presents? And I guess one of the main issues probably is defining appropriate treatment for children who have it.
1: Yes, um, it's one of the most common solid tumours that's seen in children and unfortunately it's fatal in around half the patients that are diagnosed. Um, So one of the sort of key areas of research is to identify those with a poor prognosis and currently there's various factors um, that are outlined in a stratification system that's called the INRG and that's the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group. And they use these factors which include things like age, tumour stage, mixed status, DNA ploidy and histopathology to stratify patients according to a low, intermediate or high risk. But the difficulty is there's still differences within these groups that some patients that are placed in the low and intermediate risk groups still do poorly. So there's a need to pick out these patients so that they can be given the more aggressive and intensive treatments that are usually reserved for the high risk patients. And of course you get the opposite um, situation where those are placed in, where patients can be placed in the high risk group, receive quite a toxic or intensive um, treatment and you're exposing them unnecessarily if they're actually low, lower risk um, to the side effects and potential long term late effects.
0: I see and what are the aims of the current study?
1: The aim of the study that we've published in this issue was to identify and validate a gene signature that would help to pick out these patients within the risk categories that have this different disease cause to that which is expected, i.e., that have a different prognosis from that that's predicted currently by the INRG system.
0: Great, and Emma, um, briefly, just outline the methodology and the, and the main findings here.
1: The authors used data mining techniques to identify gene signature that correlated with patient outcome. It's a retrospective study. They used data from seven published microarray studies and the signature was then independently validated in a blinded analysis. And it's quite a large study and includes 579 patients. 59 gene signature was identified Um, by multivariate analysis. um, The authors showed that the signature was a significant independent predictor of both overall survival and progression-free survival, and that was after controlling for the other currently used risk factors. And the performance sensitivity and specificity to predict patient outcome were all over 80%. And
0: Emma, what do you think are the implications of these results, face value, it seems like uh, quite a practical prognostic tool really for for clinicians. What do you think are the next steps here?
1: Yes, hopefully it should be quite a practical tool. The INRG that I mentioned earlier currently doesn't include such a molecular prognostic uh, signature, but after confirmation in a prospective analysis and provided it's cost effective, of course, and easy to use, then hopefully the signature can be incorporated into the future risk classifications. It is actually based on a real-time PCR reaction and very small amounts of RNA needed. The link commentators to the article actually do highlight that obtaining clinical samples can be difficult in this patient group. The signature also highlights other avenues for future research in that the genes that they've identified might provide new therapeutic targets for drug development.
0: Next Emma, if you could just briefly outline a review and this is uh, concerning Gardner syndrome. I don't know what that is, so do tell us more.
1: Well, Gardner syndrome describes the extraclonic manifestations that are seen in patients with familial adenomatosis, polyposis, which for obvious reasons is commonly known as FAP. Patients with FAP have germline mutations in the APC gene, and this means they're at an increased risk of cancer. Um, For example, they most commonly develop uh, colorectal cancer. And the authors in this personal view that's published in this issue they describe Gardner syndrome as a variant of FAP where these extraclonic features are most prominent. The authors suggest in this personal view that ciliary dysfunction might be the underlying pathogenetic mechanism for these clinical manifestations, which are seen in both the Gardner syndrome and cilia-related disorders. And these two groups of patients also have common targets in the Wnt signaling pathway. For example, beta-catenin is degraded in both of the groups. And so the author suggests that by considering Gardner's syndrome in the context of a cilia-related disorder, this might result in a better understanding of the pathways that are involved and suggest new therapeutic options.
0: Thanks, Emma. And let's just conclude briefly with The Leading Edge, the editorial this month, just days after we've discussed for the Lancet Weekly Journal the impact of uh, alcohol on public health, particularly in Russia. Here we have a Leading Edge editorial from the Lancet Oncology saying...
1: Yes, absolutely. There's some nice synergy there. In the Lancet piece, um, it actually highlighted a call for a legally binding framework convention on alcohol control. And that was to tackle the estimated um, number of deaths, which is 600,000 every year in Russia from alcohol. Well, tobacco is another huge issue in Russia. um, But one where a little bit more progress has been made. They've actually ratified the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and this is largely through efforts of parliamentarians such as Nikolai Gerasimenko. And our Leading Edge this month discusses the next phase, and that's the implementation of this Framework Convention and the barriers that need to be overcome.
0: Thanks very much indeed, Emma. Those are some of the highlights from the July issue of the Lancet on Oncology. Obviously, for more information, read the issue. But in the meantime, many thanks to Emma. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.
1: Thank you.